I'm ready. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Giulio Prisco. And in this uh, episode of the Turing Church podcast, I'll be talking with legendary space philosopher Frank White of Overview Effect fame. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we participated both in an uh, online uh, discussion. Uh, and I had many questions and observations for him, but um, I didn't have, uh, we didn't have the time to go over all I wanted to discuss uh, with him. So uh, I thought of having a one-on-one -on -one chat to explore all these things. Hello, Frank, thank you very much for joining me. Hello, good to see you, and I'm happy to be with you today. Frank doesn't need any introduction. Of course, he's the one who coined the term overview effect to describe uh, the powerful mind-changing and life-changing impact of seeing the Earth from space, as reported from the astronauts. And Frank wrote a series of books, uh, starting with uh, the seminal and very influential The Overview Effect, first published in 1987. One of his last books is The Cosma Hypothesis. I'm going to center very much on this one. Uh, published uh, in 2018. Uh, I will start with uh, my own interpretation of Frank's ideas. To me, the feeling of unity with the universe that you describe embraces the whole of space and time, including the future. When I look at the majestic galaxies out there, I feel close to future humans living among the stars and contributing to cosmic evolution, which is what you write about in your books. Looking at deep space, I feel part of our cosmic destiny. Indeed, as you say, we are actively encouraged by larger forces to expand into the universe out there and play an important cosmic role among the stars. This universal insight is part of my personal religion, and I seek the powerful feeling of unity with the universe that we have been calling the deep space effect. Uh, the deep space effect is a cosmic equivalent of the overview effect. When the astronauts look at the Earth from outside, they feel one with our planet. When they look uh, out there into deep space, they feel one with uh, the whole universe. And I will add that this is a feeling that we can have down here on the surface on the surface of the earth without even having to go into space. So in this sense, uh, achieving the deep space effect is easier than achieving the overview effect. I think our duty to God or to God by any other name or to the cosmos or to some cosmic principle that favors life or to life itself is to expand beyond the earth into the black sky and support cosmic evolution. We are going to come to that. But my first question is this, Frank, in your books, you came across uh, as a believer. 
so I'm wondering, do you participate in an organized uh, religion? And what is your concept of divinity? Um, <clears throat> well, thank you for that question. Thank you for reading the Cosmo Hypothesis. I think more people have read the overview effect than Cosma, but I'd like to have more readers of uh, Cosma, and I'd like to have more questions like the ones you're asking, Julio. So, yeah, so first of all, I would say I was raised as a Christian in the Presbyterian Church, and I've always resonated with the Christian worldview, and especially I've always resonated with Jesus as a teacher, as a spiritual teacher. I do go to the Episcopal Church. Um, I find it to be a beautiful community for me. And I find the, um, you know, the ritual, the, the service to be meaningful. I'm also very drawn to Zen Buddhism. And I'm also very drawn to Taoism. And at one point in time, I threatened to create a new religion that was going to be called Tao Zen Christianity. Uh, say uh, that again. My new religion was going to be called Tao Zen Christianity. Tao Zen Christianity. So it would unite Taoism, Zen Buddhism, and Christianity. Um, I've never really formed a new religion, but I would say my spiritual practice really is Tao Zen Christianity in, in everyday life. And so I'm very interested in spirituality. And I would say a couple of things. Spirituality, I think, is very personal and, and highly variable. And I think it has to do with the experience of being part of something larger than yourself. That relates very powerfully to the overview effect. I consider religion an effort to capture the essence of spiritual insight and to make it a social technology. I think religion and spirituality are different but connected. And I think the connection is in both cases, you see this sense of being part of something larger than yourself. That really connects to the overview effect, the Cosmo hypothesis, the deep space effect, the universal insight, all the things that you and I have been talking about. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's also important. Uh, one of my spiritual teachers was Ram Dass, who was very active in the 70s. And he said, well, you know. He wrote, uh, he wrote a quite famous book, uh, but could you remind me of what the title was? Be Here Now. Right. And Ram Dass said, it's great to be eclectic, which I am. <laughs> I'm very eclectic. But he said, you need, to, you need to focus on something specific to make progress spiritually. And so I returned to Christianity as my primary core uh, practice. But it doesn't mean that I agree with everything that the church teaches. And it doesn't mean that I'm really in alignment with everything that Christianity tells us. But 
the essence of it is still meaningful to me as it was when I was a little kid. So your concept of divinity, uh, as I'm understanding, is uh, not exactly the same, but uh, perhaps related in some way to the Christian concept of God, right? Yeah, in some way. And one thing I think is important, because I thought about this a lot before we got together today, I think most Christians and most adherents to any religion would not be able to tell you the nature of God or their God. I think it's something that we try to interpret, we try to explain, we try to read scriptures to explain the nature of divinity. And yet anyone who's truly honest would say, whatever and whoever God is, it's something far beyond our ability to understand it very easily. Um, and so, again, I think that relates back to everything we're talking about with space exploration. It's very difficult to comprehend the nature of the universe. And of course, I call the universe Cosma. I do think it's important to give it a name and to personalize it to some extent. Um, but I find myself exploring the nature of God or the nature of divinity. I don't feel like I have to have a final answer and a dogmatic understanding of the nature of God. And that's part of why I wrote the Cosmo Hypothesis. It's not really an exploration of the nature of God. It's more an exploration of the nature of the universe in relationship to human beings. And I, I do think in many ways, Cosma is similar to our idea of a, of a divinity. However, if a religious person said to me, no, you're wrong. God stands outside of the universe and created the universe. God is not the universe. I would be okay with that. What I was attempting to do in the Cosmo Hypothesis was to come up with a philosophy of space exploration that would, hope, I hope, be meaningful to people of different religious persuasions and, and that would not depend on their concept of God. I see. I will add that uh, my own concept of God is quite uh, uh, similar, or at least uh, related to yours. Now, we have been talking about uh, religions, including uh, Christianity and uh, Buddhism. Mm, I'm wondering, do you think the universal insight could be incorporated into the value system of uh, the world's uh, traditional religions and uh, could uh, the integration of uh, uni the universal insight into the world's uh, traditional religions actually help humanity go to the stars and uh, support cosmic evolution should this integration happen and if so how could we make it happen 
Well, I think it has to happen. Um, I think religions really have to look beyond our planet and look into the cosmos. Religions have to, in order to be taken seriously, I think the world religions need to give some thought to what uh, space exploration and development have shown us and uh, to integrate the universal insight into into their way of thinking. You know, the universal insight is a term I coined on reading about Edgar Mitchell's experience in outer space, where he was coming back from the moon. And at first I categorized it as the overview effect. And then I thought, no, I think it's something beyond. Uh, it includes the overview effect. But he really had a connection with the universe. And I'm paraphrasing here, but one of the commentaries said that he came to understand God, but not in the way that religion had defined it, but as a kind of universal consciousness. And, um, and I think that's an interesting area to look at and explore. And I think it would be really interesting if a well-known religion had, let's say, a seminar or, or a webinar on this topic. Uh, what did Edgar Mitchell experience? And he's not the only astronaut who has had this connection with the universe. You know, Julia, it's interesting. When I wrote the first couple of editions of the overview effect, I was so focused on how the astronauts perceived the Earth. I didn't focus on the fact that they actually saw the entire cosmos in a way that was new and different. And so when I wrote the Cosmo Hypothesis, I did include a lot of astronaut quotes in there, but it was more how they how they interacted with the universe. And I've now been talking to some of the commercial astronauts on Blue Origin. And it's rather remarkable because they have these very, very short flights. They are, in many cases, you know, relating more to the blackness, as they call it, than the blue. Um, and I've been really kind of surprised at how profound their experiences are, even though they're not there for very long. However, what it opens up is this entire conversation about the human connection to the universe. And as you mentioned, much of it can be experienced from the surface. We can look into the night sky and see much of the same thing. But there is something different about being weightless, uh, looking out or being on a spacewalk and looking out and just seeing it goes on forever and ever. There's no atmosphere between you and the cosmos. And it's a whole new 
domain of research, I think. Right, and I hope that uh, many people will have the opportunity to experience this deep space effect directly in space. Uh, but you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon that everyone can do so. And also people uh, our age, we are not uh, so young anymore. Our friend who just joined uh, Thomas is younger than us and he could perhaps, but uh, no, not everyone can go to orbit, but everyone can move out of the city, maybe on the mountains, uh, you see, and have uh, gorgeous views of the night sky. And in my case, uh, this really does help me achieve, I don't know whether to call it deep space effect or not, but a very powerful effect. You know, once you get to, even for a couple of seconds, to feel one with all these stars that you're seeing, it is a spiritual experience and it does have an impact. Uh, I had a curiosity hearing you talking about Edgar Mitchell. Have you participated somehow or been involved in the activities of his Institute for Noetic Science? I have. Which, uh, I believe is uh, very much centered on the human potential and uh, paranormal science and all that, all things that Dean Radin writes about. Have you participated in any of that? And what do you think about uh, what they do? Well, I have, and it's interesting. Um, a lot of people, when they talk to me about the overview effect, they want examples of astronauts who have changed their lives when they've come back and or who have have done something specific with the experience and Edgar Mitchell is a great example because he started the Institute of Noetic Sciences because he felt that his experience had to do with consciousness and yet Edgar Mitchell was trained as a scientist and so the Institute of Noetic Sciences is really tightly connected with um, science and consciousness and looking at how to bring those two things together, how to study consciousness scientifically. I've made presentations there with Claudia Wells, who's been chair of the board there. And I've been very supportive of the organization in part because I'm grateful to Edgar Mitchell. You know, he's a great supporter of my work. He gave a wonderful interview for the overview effect early on. And I just think what he's doing is important. Um, you know, I, I get kind of uh, confused when I hear people say we can't define consciousness or we don't know what it is. Well, we can define it. I mean, you look in the dictionary, there is a definition for consciousness. Uh, you know, we can describe consciousness. We may not totally agree on what it is. We may, we may feel that we don't have a scientific understanding of it. But it's not something we can't approach, understand, and discuss. It's not off limits. A lot of, a lot of scientists consider it off limits. But the Institute of Noetic Sciences does not. And 
I say more power to them for going ahead and looking at what could be more important than the nature of consciousness. Why not? Why not explore it? Why not use the scientific method to understand it? So I can't say I'm deeply involved with the organization, but I'm certainly involved and supportive of it. Definitely. No, uh, I think we agree uh, that uh, some kind of integration of the universal insight into established religions will be a good thing. And yeah. it, it should happen. Now, uh, well, um, I hope it will happen. Now, suppose it doesn't happen. And uh, if it doesn't happen, then we have the alternative of new religion, uh, new religions centered on the universal insight that could appear and uh, gradually replace traditional religions with uh, new rituals centered on the deep space effect. And I was just thinking that one of these new rituals could be once uh, you know the cost of uh, suborbital uh, flights goes very much down just to do services, sending everyone to look at uh, deep space uh, just out of the atmosphere. That would be a nice thing. However, yeah. which one of these two scenarios would you prefer? An integration within uh, traditional religions or the emergence of uh, new religions specifically related to the ideas that we are discussing? Well, first of all, I think there will be new religions formed. I think it's almost inevitable. Many, many years ago, and I think it was probably in the 1990s, I went to a conference on space exploration. I met some people who were starting a new religion based on space. It wasn't really on the universal insight. But, you know, July 20th was a holy day for them because that's when we landed on the moon. And uh, so I saw it even then. And I've said before that I would not be opposed to someone starting an overview effect religion. You know, the only thing I'm opposed to is dogma and kicking people out because they're heretics. Um, that's my only issue with religion is when it becomes so structured that there's no room for free thought. But to create, uh, as I said, a social technology and a community around an idea and a way of life, I have no problem with it. So, I, and I don't have a preference really in the sense that I would like to see established religions open up a little more and understand what's going on here, that we are leaving planet Earth, or at least some of us are. And um, I, I think hmm. that humans very naturally seek a religious orientation. So if the established religions don't adapt and don't go outward to the moon and Mars and to O'Neill-type communities, that people will indeed create their own their own religion. So 
I don't prefer one over the other. I would only be in favor of both of both strands being open to possibility and opportunity and 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 new ideas. So I think both are going to happen inevitably. I hope so. Uh, by the way, I'll have to ask you to repeat uh, and maybe spell uh, the name of the religion that you almost founded because uh, I didn't catch it and I didn't uh -oh. manage to Google it. So just spell it for me, please. Yeah, so it would be Tao Zen Christianity. Can you spell the first word? T-A-O. Yeah. Tao. And then Zen, of course, is Z-E-N. Ah, Tao Zen. So it's a mix of uh, Tao and Zen. Great. Was, uh, really and incidentally, if anybody is interested in this, oh, here's my... Uh, my partner. Um, Hello, Maya. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I did write a book called Meditations on the Third Chinese Patriarch of Zen. And in that book, I did research and I found that Christianity and Zen Buddhism or Christianity and Buddhism are not that far apart. If you look back at their history, um, Taoism also is not that far apart. Christians were early called people of the way. Um, and Taoism talks about the great way, as does Zen. And uh, what, what has driven Christianity and Buddhism apart is actually, again, codifying this is what Christianity is. This is what Buddhism is. There was a time when they didn't seem so far apart. And for example, if you look at the Gospel of Thomas, mm -hmm. which was not included in the canon that found its way into the New Testament, the way Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Thomas is quite similar to a Buddhist way of thinking. So this brings me back to the idea that all of the religions, while they've become codified and, and you know, if you think outside the box, you're not part of that religion, I think most of the world religions have a commonality that's been obscured. So, you know, and maybe in looking at our place in the universe, and who we are in the universe, we might be able to find more commonality again, which would be a good thing. Uh, these conflicts between religions are certainly not serving us in any way whatsoever. I really agree on that very much. By the way, uh, first time I met you online, it was in December in a workshop that I organized for an organization called Terrasen. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, I don't know, I don't know if you had realized at the time that this Terrasen is actually intended as a new religion uh, with a lot of uh, points in common with what we are discussing, you know, the importance of uh, space exploration, consciousness, our ultimate destiny, and mm -hmm. so on. Um, it has uh, some uh, 
uh, extra aspects related to the preservation of uh, individual consciousness here and now by means of uh, computer technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, on which points I do have some reservations myself, huh? even mm -hmm. if I'm very friendly with this organization. But mm -hmm. uh, the common uh, cosmological core that it has in common with the ideas that uh, we are discussing, and I would say with our ideas, because I'm very much in line with you, all of yeah. the spectrum is uh, interesting, at least. I will send you some documentation. That'd be great. Yeah, I did not know that about Terrasen, but that's very, very interesting. And Yeah, I'll send you a little yeah. summary that I have written to summarize it. That'd be great. I really think, Julio, you know, unless unless you do start your own religion, if you're a free thinking person, you're not going to agree with everything in any religious structure, even within the Episcopal Church, which is where I attend. There are strong differences within the church about but, uh, yeah, but you know, that happens even if you do start your own religion. Yeah, it will. And, uh, and, you know, I speak for from some experience because I have started one, even if I don't call it a religion. Yeah. I don't know what to call it. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes I, didn't, I disagree with myself since, uh, <laughs> um, you know, everything has very much to do with... Uh, uh, our current scientific understanding of the world, which is uh, not final by any means. Uh, right. you know, sometimes I think something in the evening, which is very different from what I was thinking in the morning and very different from what I will be thinking tomorrow. But, um, you know, I don't really let the fact that I do not have... Uh, one of these completely tightened up and integrated worldview is an objective that I hope I will achieve, but maybe not. Mm, but you know, the thing is that there is, uh, it would be a very valuable thing, but there is also a lot of value, I think, in uh, many different strands of thought that perhaps don't converge exactly in one point. It maybe don't even come together that well, but. Uh, it's like the parable of the elephant, you know, the blind people, you know, someone says that the elephant is something, then I say, uh, one says that the elephant is something else, but at the end, everyone is right because everyone is describing just one aspect of the elephant. Yeah, that's very, that's very real. And uh, I just interviewed Dylan Taylor, who is my publisher, my friend, uh, benefactor. He flew on Blue Origin, and I interviewed him before and after his flight. And after his flight, he said what you did. He said that um, <laughs> the overview effect is like the blind men, um, you know, trying to explain what an elephant is. Everybody is having the same experience, but talking about it and explaining it differently. And Edgar Mitchell said that too. And, and therefore, you could say 
there are many, many different experiences of the overview effect or spaceflight. Edgar Mitchell said, no, it's all the same experience, but it's processed through different brains, different uh, worldviews, different personal histories. And so that's true of any phenomenon, even on Earth, where people will have, quote unquote, the same experience, but when they describe it, it's very different. Definitely. Now, I was uh, very much uh, intrigued by reading about uh, the emerging religion that Yuval Harari calls dataism in his book Homo Deus. Uh, I was uh, reading in your book that uh, you see many parallels between your ideas and yeah. this uh, thing that he calls uh, dataism. Could you elaborate on the parallels and differences? Yeah, I can. I think there's a lot of commonality. Um, <clears throat> for many years, it has seemed so obvious to me that a unified way of describing everything in the universe would be to understand that the universe is a living information system. And that just seems a priori accurate to me. Not, it's not a belief. It's not a scientific proof. It just seems intuitively obvious that the universe is a living information system. Or you can even take out living. It's definitely an information system with information flowing from one part of the universe to another. And uh, so that would be the starting point. As I understand Harari's thinking about dataism, and he's not the only person who's, who's interested in dataism. It, it's the same, except they talk more about data flows. I talk about information. But what I'm looking for is a unified theory that could describe a human being, a plant, a star, a planet. In other words, what term or way of thinking could unify our understanding of everything? And information systems, or what I call info systems, seem to be accurate in doing that. And it seems to me evolution is, is the creation of increasingly more complex complicated information systems, but these complicated or complex info systems are, are comprised of simpler information systems. And consciousness, in my, in my theory, consciousness or the level of consciousness really depends upon the level of complexity of the information system. So, in that sense, everything in the universe is conscious. We don't have to di differentiate between that, you know, that entity is not conscious and this one is. And 
an atom is conscious to the extent that it it is complex, right? So this is not totally original, incidentally. Um, I'm not sure. Have you come across Russian cosmism? Oh, sure. Uh, and panpsychism. Right. Uh, yes, and Russian cosmism is one of the main influence that yeah. uh, I had from uh, yeah. the history of all times. Yeah, me too. And as you know, Fedorov was the kind of originator of cosmism, and then uh, Sokovsky was a disciple of Fedorov, and he actually laid the foundation for the Soviet space program. And I would say, other than Gerard K. O'Neill, who is a, is a role model for me, I would say Solkovsky is a role model. Because what I'm seeking to do is create a human space program that reflects the uh, panpsychic or cos cosmism um, philosophical worldview. Um, I'm trying to see how those two things can go together. If I understand what uh, Harari is saying, and actually I find him very influential, he is trying to say much the same thing I am, but I don't see him being very interested in the space program. Uh, he doesn't seem to talk about that a lot. What he does talk about is artificial intelligence. And there in his book, Homo Deus, he, he shows that to some extent, this dataism perspective can explain how uh, biological data processing and non-biological data processing are very, very similar. And I think that's a good thing because Right now, our society is really terrified of artificial intelligence, almost seeing it as an alien life form and missing what might come of cooperating and working with AI. And uh, I talk about that in the Cosmo Hypothesis, which is AI could help us to explore the universe. I mean, exploring the universe is a huge task. And I see AI as being almost necessary for us to really understand the cosmos. So that's a long answer to your question. I see a lot of comparison, though. Interesting and fascinating. By the way, another thing that you mentioned in uh, your book is the integrated information theory that yeah. uh, I think is related to all this. It's related to the nature of consciousness, uh, panpsychism. Uh, perhaps it's not uh, the final theory of consciousness. Perhaps we won't ever have such a thing. But I'm following this development with a lot of interest. And as a matter of fact, it seems uh, there will be a new book of uh, Giulio Tononi coming out sometime. Uh, they don't have uh, an ETA yet. And the book will be mm -hmm. done when it's done, which should be called On Being. And if I understand them right, it's uh, not only about nature of consciousness, but on uh, 
the nature of being, what does to objectively exist mean? And uh, I definitely mm. look very much forward to reading that. I, I, I look forward to that as well. I'm very impressed with his work and I've never been in touch with him. I've been waiting to be in touch with him when I feel like I have a meaningful question for him or, or when I think I could have a meaningful conversation with him. Um, you know, what I wrote about in the Cosmo Hypothesis was just that if you look at his work, it may give you some sense that I'm not the only person talking about information as the underlying structure of consciousness, because he's done a huge amount of work on that. He's also done efforts to add some uh, numbers to it and to make it very, I, I would say, empirical. And I, I also, when I, I saw a YouTube interview with him, and it seemed to me he also shared the idea that consciousness is not that, you know, hard to understand. We ought to really delve into it and try to understand it, not put it off over here as a taboo that science can't get involved with. And and then that way I see him as in the in the tradition of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and and in the kind of thing you and I are both talking about. So uh, again, uh, there are a lot more people in the tradition you and I are talking about than is usually recognized, I think. Right. Mm, you mentioned the your uh, reactions to the possibility of uh, some uh, godlike agents that created the universe from outside, something like a god, like in traditional Western religions, or also in uh, simulation cosmology, which, uh, from my point of view, is almost exactly the same thing. You don't rule out this possibility, but you focus on uh, a self-aware universal mind that emerges from inside the universe instead of creating it from outside. Now, the question that uh, jumps to mind is uh, whether this uh, mind would be a, a personal mind with uh, some sense of uh, personal identity and goals, feelings, hopes, and fears, and all the things that uh, occupy our own mind all the time. What do you think about this? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I do think, again, I gave the name Cosma to this universal mind. So I did personalize it. Um, and I believe that Cosma has a degree of consciousness. And I believe that that is one of the reasons that humanity has essentially evolved on this planet and is on the verge of becoming a spacefaring species. Because I do think that Cosma 
becomes more self-aware and conscious as we become more self-aware and conscious because we're part of the universe. Um, you know, typically we we don't think of it that way. We think we're here and we're separate from the universe, but we're not. For a long time in modern society, we thought the same way about the earth. You know, we're separate from the earth. One of the things the astronauts tend to see is, no, we're part of the earth. Uh, we're not separate. And one of the interviews I did was with Sarah Sabri, who flew on Blue Origin with Space for Humanity. She actually won a seat on Blue Origin. And I asked her kind of what was her takeaway, and it was like, there's no distinction between Earth and space. We we create this distinction, but the the new Shepard spacecraft uh, leaves the pad and goes up so fast that you really realize all of a sudden, no, there's no Earth and space. You know, the Earth is in space. It is part of the universe. And we are part of the universe as well. And so as we evolve, the universe evolves. And as the universe evolves, we evolve. One of the reasons I think we're so interested or should be interested in life on other planets or elsewhere and intelligent life is finding out, is this a co-evolving co process that really involves multiple intelligences throughout the cosmos is it a really big project and uh, that we should join with et in this project or are we essentially unique is it kind of up to us to do it so going back to your your question what really stumps me and i don't know is Cosma such an entity that they have hopes and fears? I don't know. <laughs> that seems very human. Um, Cosma may be bigger than that, Julia. Yeah, uh, not only human. Your dog, uh, sure, she's having uh, feelings and thoughts and things. Right. With uh, a different uh, texture from ours. It's the right. dog is uh, different from us, and as uh, Thomas Nagel said, the bat is even more different from us, but uh, you know, essentially is a consciousness that has uh, an overlap with ours, I believe. No, you're right. I mean, uh, for a long time, humans had this idea that animals operated by instinct, and they weren't intelligent, they didn't have feelings, they weren't essentially sentient but we know better now and certainly you're right um, my dog Maisie Dobbs definitely has feelings and she makes them known to me they're they're not human but they are feelings so maybe it's universal this whole thing of feelings I don't know yes perhaps it is back to the consciousness of the universal mind, do you think it is already self-aware? 
perhaps as a result of the help of alien civilizations that evolved before us, or is that we who are expected to assist the self-awareness of the universal mind to emerge? And how could we assist a universal mind that already exists as a self-aware being? Mm. Well, I believe that it comes down to learning and being open to what we learn. And again, there is a symbiosis between us and the, and the universe. And I, so I think in, in an interesting way, by serving ourselves, we serve the larger evolutionary process, don't we? In other right. words. It can only be good for us to understand the cosmos better than we do now. And so projects like the James Webb Space Telescope and Hubble, which, you know, it's not human spaceflight, it's putting our instruments out there, help us to understand our environment better. Right. And the better we understand the environment, uh, the more we are going to evolve successfully. And okay. yeah, and so um, how, the only thing I can say definitively is the way that that helps the cosmos is that, you know, it's a form of self-understanding for the cosmos. Um, you know, it's a way, I think Carl Sagan talked about humans as a way for the cosmos to understand itself better. And so I think I resonate with that, that it's just like we, we come to understand ourselves better and we're helping the universe to understand itself better. Right, and um, I think perhaps we can um, help the universe, not only by understanding more, but also in a physical sense of spreading life outside the Earth. Once we bring life to Mars, there, there will be more sentient beings in the human solar system. And when we move to the star, there will be more and more and more. And having many more intelligent beings that think and understand things better that uh, can only be good for Cosma, I think. Yeah, and that's essentially the Cosma hypothesis is that our ecological purpose is to, is to transmit life, intelligence, and self-awareness where it does not now exist. And uh, my colleague, Rick Tumlinson, really um, proposes a very similar idea that, you know, our role is to bring life uh, to dead places, as he says. He says yes. you know, he's really an advocate of life. And, uh, and you know, I, I think that's true. And I see already there are companies springing up where they, you can send your DNA to the moon or elsewhere. So why would you want to do that? Well, maybe there's some there's something deeply embedded in us that we want to 
we want to contribute to this evolutionary process. Yes. And you know, you know one thing I would I just want to say one thing. We could contribute to the process without understanding it. You know? We don't have to understand everything. We want to, but does a bee understand pollination? Maybe they do. <laughs> I don't want to shortchange the bees. They may have every understanding that they need, but they're contributing without understanding. They don't really have to understand it. But perhaps if they did understand, they could contribute to pollination even better than how they're doing now. They could improve on it, I'm sure. Um, but it's something I've thought about for many, many years that whatever our purpose in the universe is, we might fulfill it without being able to write a book about it. Right. You know? You noted that uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is not human. Uh, well, uh, that would change. Imagine a future version of the James Webb Space uh, Telescope with a very advanced artificial intelligence, uh, like a chat GTP on steroids, much <laughs> more advanced than what we can do now, and uh, with uh, cognitive level equivalent to humans, or even imagine this artificial intelligence uh, based on uh, the uploaded mind of a human being with uh, appropriate uh, AI augmentations, which I think is uh, how we will evolve. I mean, the thing is that humans, machines, uh, we may be on a convergent road that will create human-machine hybrids. At some point, you won't even be able to say which is which, and it won't even matter, because we will be just future persons, and that's it. So I right. I mean to think. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, uh, you know, intelligence can reside, as you and I have discussed, intelligence can reside in a dog or a human. Actually, I think intelligence, I did write a book about artificial intelligence, and there are experiments that show bees are intelligent. And by intelligence, it means they can learn from experience. They're not driven by instinct, right? So they can learn machine learning, biological learning. And so um, we, we don't talk enough about the role of artificial intelligence in human expansion outward, but it could be profoundly important. You know, I was in a, a workshop or in a class the other day at Kepler Space Institute and we were talking about some of these topics and it occurred to me that the way we think about human spaceflight we have a spaceship that it's relatively intelligent okay but that's not its role and then we put humans in it and we have to put them in a spaceship because the space environment will kill them if they're not in a protected environment. 
But as we were in this class, I started thinking about an artificially intelligent spaceship, which it wouldn't have to carry humans. It could go anywhere, do anything. It could bring a level of human intelligence to Mars or to the moon or wherever. And all the issues we have to think about, like low gravity, radiation, all of those dangers, this artificially intelligent spacecraft, like your James Webb telescope, could really do an incredible amount of exploration. I mean, you could even imagine such a spacecraft that could land, and then it could it could have some means of mobility after it landed. It could have some means of dexterous manipulation. Full robotic body. Yeah, I mean, it goes on and on once you start imagining it, but we've got the spaceships and we've got the AI and we've got robots, but we don't think about the three things together. We're kind of in an old paradigm, but yeah. Uh, once we start thinking about cooperation and hybrid human-robot configurations, the whole enterprise becomes, I, I think, really interesting. And it, it's science fiction now, but it may not be tomorrow. Do you know, incidentally, that the Blue Origin flight, I bet you know this, Julio, uh, I haven't told you anything you didn't already know today. I know that. But, you know, the Blue Origin spacecraft, New Shepard, has no pilot. I know. Yeah, I knew you knew that. I mean, it's completely computerized, and it works. So that's just an example of what things could be like. Sooner or later, also our cars will be computerized and... Uh self-driving but i myself will still want to have the option of uh, manual control yeah well i uh i i don't mind giving up driving i mean <laughs> at this point i take uber everywhere oh that's um you know yeah that's uh, uh very convenient i take uber when i when i come to the us here uh, we don't have cheap uber but, uh, you know, I, uh, if I lived in uh, New York or Los Angeles, I wouldn't even think of owning a car. Because, yeah. you know, taking an Uber is so much more convenient. You don't have to park it. You don't have to pay. At the end, it's also cheaper because you don't have to buy gas and pay insurance. Uh, yeah. Having a car, uh, even in a city like Los Angeles, which is very much made for cars, is uh, useless, and in a city like New York, is a nightmare. It's much yeah, more a problem definitely. than a solution. Yeah. However, yeah, this, but this may be where where we're going, which is um, uh, an Uber that's driven by an AI. I can see that. That's going to come uh, pretty soon, I believe. Uh, in Cosma Hypothesis, you mentioned, and this is very intriguing, the possibility that, uh, and I'm quoting here, the possibility that the universe has a, a sentience beyond our own and does 
care in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think this is a bridge that could connect uh, your cosmology to traditional uh, religions, because that's exactly what uh, the Christian God does. Now, do you think believers in uh, traditional religions like Christianity could consistently identify the universal mind with the God or maybe the gods of their uh, religion? Yeah, you're right. The, uh, you know, the, I was at a workshop uh, at Harvard some years ago, and we were talking about space exploration in general. And at lunch, I was talking about the Cosmo hypothesis. And one of the participants whom I respect very much said, Frank, don't you know the universe doesn't care about humans? And I just said, how do you know that? And that was the end of that discussion because it was just an assumption. Now, the other side of the coin is I don't know that the universe cares about humans or is interested in humans. That's the hypothesis about why humans are on the verge of being able to leave the planet and explore the universe, is that the universe has nurtured us, supported us, avoided our extinction, you know, in order to serve a higher purpose. Um, it really is a miracle that we exist. It really is. Um, if you look at four and a half billion years of terrestrial history, how many species have gone extinct? And yet, here we are. And um, so I would say there is a parallel to the traditional notion of God. And yeah, you're right. I was raised to believe that God cares about me, um, wants the best for me, and yet I have free will, and I can make bad choices. And, and I guess, in a way, what I'm proposing provide something very similar to someone who chooses not to believe in God. Um, and that's not why I did it, but, but I think it, it, could, it could work for people. And it keeps on returning to this idea of being part of something larger than ourselves. You know what I mean? Um, I'm trying to think of a simple example of this. So, I, I care about my heart. And of course, if I didn't care about my heart, it would be dangerous for me, mm -hmm. uh, you know. But I try to take care of my heart. I try to do the right thing for my heart. I mean, in an interesting way, I have the overview perspective of my heart. And what I do is good for my heart, but it's also good for me. And maybe that's an analogy that anyone could understand because we all have that same situation where, 
we try to take care of our physical bodies uh, and it's for it's for mutual benefit maybe the universe works that way as well right it may be the example of a fingernail would work even better than the heart when it comes to the relation between ourselves and God. I mean, yeah. I'm not as uh, I could uh, think that I'm not essential as a heart to the functioning right. of God, but maybe I am moderately useful, like a fingernail, which is <laughs> not a very important thing, but it does come useful now and then. Yep. Uh, and maybe I am useful to God now and then that's a nice uh, image to bear in mind um i know let me come to what would be seen as the elephant in the room i think is that we have been uh, discussing uh, uh universal self-awareness perhaps that the universe thinks and feels and uh, cares for us uh, learns uh but uh, how does it do that you don't uh, speculate uh, in the books at least uh, on the physical nature of universal sentience you say uh, more like uh, uh the universe is becoming more conscious because we are part of the universe and we are becoming more conscious uh we don't go you don't go at least uh, as far as i have seen you don't go into uh physical theories that would explain how exactly the universe does this thinking but maybe you have seen that there are now more and more uh, speculative physical theories around that uh, suggest uh, the very fabric of space-time is like a neural network that learns uh, and thinks and now if you go and look uh, at the mathematics of these things you find analogies uh, between uh, the mathematics of quantum field theory and the mathematics of deep uh, learning and neural networks uh, and this kind of things uh, but you know, let's not bother with uh, mathematics now some smart uh, people are writing scientific papers about this now this idea that uh, the universe would be doing whatever thinking and learning it does based on some yet uh, not understood deep physics that is going on deep inside the structure of space-time do these kind of ideas make sense to you yeah they do um i know that in the cosmo hypothesis at the time I was writing it, there was a paper out where uh, the authors of the paper pointed out that if you look at the structure of the galaxies in the universe, it looks a lot like a human brain or a neural network. I think they might have said neural network. And I found that striking. I've seen images of the superstructure of galaxies, and it does look like a neural network and yet the authors of the paper wanted to point out most vehemently they were not implying that there was a universal mind or they weren't implying there was a cosmic brain 
and they must have been uh, young and still uh, vulnerable to <laughs> the danger of being politically incorrect in academic settings. I'm I sure think of that. So. Yeah, and and I think you know, in my mind, uh, I don't know if you have this saying where you are, but in America we say if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Right. <laughs> And so all I can say is, well, if the structure of uh, everything we can see out there is very similar to a brain, it's not just a human brain, you know, brains are brains. Um, maybe there is some analogy there or similarity there that we ought to pay attention to. Yes, and not only at uh, the large scale of the universe, but also at the very microscopic scale of whatever goes on quantum level. Because, you know, if you look, uh, you know, look at these uh, Feynman diagrams that they used in quantum field theory, if you look at a very complicated one with lines coming from here, from here, merging here, interacting, then going out as an output and thing, I mean, uh, when I look at a complicated diagrams of uh, quantum field interactions, I immediately think of an electronic circuits with you know an input here that does something here and results in an input there, and that's thinking. So that uh, I myself at least uh, relate uh, very well to this uh, very speculative theory that are still very theoretical, but you know more and more people are saying similar things. Right. Which means that yeah. maybe uh, is a, a good uh, research uh, direction to pursue. Yeah, I think it is. And ultimately, for me, there are a lot of people doing work that I can never equal on the theoretical level. So I keep coming back to how can it inform our next step as humans, which is we are going to leave the planet. Uh, it's going to be large-scale space migration, or it's going to be small-scale space exploration. I don't know which. But we are at a kind of inflection point. And I do want us to have a philosophy that is closer to Star Trek than to uh, The Expanse, which is another popular I like that one. I like that one very much. Yeah. Um, but my friends and I, we always talk about <laughs> we want Star Trek more than we want The Expanse because The Expanse seems to show us not know, you know, not really learning anything, but uh, running into a lot of the same problems we have on Earth. And uh, and and I just want us. Well, let's use the term. I want humanity to be conscious in its expansion into the solar ecosystem. And, you know, one thing that isn't noted very often, but one of the things I did in the human space, in the Cosmo hypothesis, is I did include our plan for a human space program. That's a 501c3 organization I founded. And again, Going back to cosmism and the, the Russians, 
uh, Sokovsky and uh, Fedorov wanted to merge philosophy with action. They wanted it to be relevant to what people did mm -hmm. every day. And that's that's what I'm working on. That's the contribution I'm trying to make. And in terms of action, when you mentioned that we could go two different ways, one is a small space exploration mission, and the other is large scale space migration. I think it has to be the latter. Also, because you know, uh, if it's only space exploration, then I can even understand the arguments of those who say that uh, we are spending far too much money in space exploration, and we should uh, spend the money on more important things here. Because you know, learning uh, some uh, feature of the geology of one of the planets in the social system. I mean, what for? if we don't uh, really want to go and live there. If uh, we study Mars because we want to live on Mars, then it makes a lot of sense. But you know, studying Mars uh, for the sake of studying Mars, uh, then I understand that let's just take the money and use them to feed many people on the earth. But if the objective is large scale space migration, then uh, I think it's something that we have to do and we yeah. don't have and we don't have all the time in the universe to do it because, right. well, the stars are not moving, but things, very bad things, could happen to us here anytime. Asteroid impact, pandemic, war, and all that. So we do have a finite uh, time window to go into space and to spread life throughout all the universe. And this means that for me, this is a very urgent thing to do. And the money that we spend with this objective in mind are the best insurance policy that money can buy. That's what I think. Well, I agree. And, and one of the philosophies of the human space program is that we are an environmental program as much as a space program. Uh, Large-scale space migration, if it's done right, could be a, a really wonderful thing for planet Earth. Exactly. Because, you know, we are really overwhelming the carrying capacity of this planet. And it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like if the baby decided to stay in the womb and wouldn't come out. And that's why we have cesarean operations. You know, if the baby stays in the womb, the mother dies. Yeah, um, exactly. Both and the the mother and the baby. The mother and the baby will die. Um, we cannot stay in the womb, and Solkovsky used this term too. You know, we can't stay in the womb forever. But done right, we could benefit the Earth and return it to a much more stable environmental system, and we can do it without destroying the other parts of the ecosystem um, and you know we need to realize the earth is part of the solar ecosystem we're again we're not separate from it we're part of it and that larger ecosystem is just waiting for life and humanity and dogs we can't forget our dogs um, <laughs> and our animals so i think uh, we need to 
as I say, flip the script. Right now, if you talk about large-scale space migration, people throw up their hands and say, oh, you're abandoning the Earth. But I think staying on the Earth might be seen as the more negative moral choice because you're just consuming the Earth's resources. And uh, it might be better and more ethical to go and make your way out there uh, in, the, in the solar ecosystem that, that's there for us and waiting for us. Um, I mean, the other, the other analogy is, you know, the famous metaphor of the child living in his or her parents' basement. <laughs> you know, your parents love you, but they really want you to go out and, and make it on your own, right? And uh, there, there comes a certain point where the parents really, they'd love to have you around, but they'd really love to see you become more independent. So I think planet Earth is like that. It, the Earth is our mother and loves us, but I really believe she'd also like to see us make our own way in the universe, you know? I totally agree on that, very much. No, I think... I think I have taken a lot of your time and at some point I will have to let you go. But since tomorrow is Easter, I have one more question, which is if your cosmology includes any concept of a personal resurrection and afterlife for us. Well, I'll, I'll separate afterlife from resurrection. I've done some work on near-death experiences, and I'm pretty convinced that there is an afterlife, that uh, human consciousness continues after the body dies. It's not a belief. The evidence seems to point to it, in my mind. The, there are certainly critics and cynics who think near-death experiences can be explained other ways, but so far I'm pretty convinced that there's something that transcends the body dying. And certainly our religious and spiritual traditions say yes, there is, right? Resurrection I find a little more complicated and my honest opinion about it is I'm trying to understand it better. It's like a lot of things. I was raised to believe it was real. And I was raised to believe that Jesus was resurrected. But in a modern context, I find it challenging to really understand it, how it would work, what it would mean. Uh, it's an area that I'm doing research on. And interestingly enough, I want to thank you, Julio, because in preparing for our talk, I went back and looked at cosmism so I could talk about it intelligently. And I found that Fedorov was deeply interested in resurrection. In fact, and in, the same concept that we call technological resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't aware that he was interested in it, and now 
I'll have to go study more about it and see if I can come to understand it better. Um, in, in fact, uh, um, you know, uh, not everything that Fyodorov wrote is translated into English, uh, just uh, excerpts, not the real thing. Uh, but uh, there is a recent, uh, I mean, uh, if you speak French, there is a recent complete edition of Fyodorov's words in French. Now, if you look at what he said about resurrection, he had kind of naive ideas, like, you know, going and look uh, throughout the universe for the atoms of, and uh, uh, molecules of people who lived in the past. Now, you put all that back together and you can resurrect our ancestors as you want. Now, this looks very naive to us. Yeah. Right, from the vantage point of the science that we know, what Fyodorov said uh, sounds like, uh, I mean, uh, it's difficult to take him seriously, but there are uh, somewhat equivalent theories of future technological resurrection, which are not based on the science of 150 years ago, but are based on the science of now. And basically the idea, which is, absolutely identical to Fyodorov's ideas, only it is uh, framed in the scientific language that we use today, is that, okay, uh, time is very strange. We have retrocausality, we have these experiments uh, that uh, we can uh, extract information from back in the past. If uh, our descendants will uh, understand uh, these things much, much better, uh, they will be able to do what some people call quantum archaeology, which is to extract information with uh, extremely high accuracy from any time in the past. Uh, and when they have the information, uh, if uh, they manage to retrieve the database that is the entire content of uh, my uh, brain from uh, the past, from their point of view, from thousands of years in the past, mm -hmm. then once they have that database in uh, the present for them, it, uh, I'm sure they will also have the technology to re-instantiate exactly that database into some uh, substrate that has a potential for uh, consciousness and thinking. And that, in very different words, more appropriate to today's time is, if you think of it, exactly the same thing that Nikolai Fyodorov was suggesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I find it fascinating. Uh, it's uh, an area I want to explore more. Uh, for now, I'm just going to go to church <laughs> and uh, and celebrate and uh, and enjoy the community uh, and uh, it. It really is. I'm I'm very serious about this. What you just talked about is an area that I really want to learn more about, and I don't feel like I'm an expert on it yet. So I would summarize by saying I do think there's an afterlife, and I don't understand resurrection, but I'm open to learning. Right. By the way, I have written an entire book about these things, and uh, if you care reading, I will send it to you tomorrow. Please do. I'd be happy to delve into it, and Easter's a great time to do it. 
Okay, so I think I've taken a lot of your time, but before ending, um, we have a visitor who has been uh, silent until now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I asked uh, Thomas to unmute. And uh, is there maybe something that you want uh, to say to Frank as a question or a comment? I don't know what it is. Much too complicated. It's, it's, uh, I, I try. it's not complicated. I don't know so. as much as you too. Well, being open to learning is the most important thing. Don't, don't worry know, about it. Don't know what to say. And we had the uh, entire video on uh, YouTube in a couple of days. So thank you very much for joining me. Frank, it's been really Thank a pleasure you. talking to you. I'll send you the link as soon as I publish this episode. Thank you very much for joining, Thomas. And uh, see you guys uh, next time.